The National Institute of Standards and Technology hopes to engage a broader community of stakeholders for something called Open Security Controls Assessment Language Program. This is an open source language backers believe could be crucial in helping agencies speed up digital technology adoption. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest, and it's called OSCAL, I guess they call this thing. What's going on here? Yeah, so this open source language called OSCAL that NIST really uh, helps drive forward expresses security and privacy controls that agencies and other organizations have to meet in a machine-readable format. And so the key here is it automates the dreaded process of things like authorization to operate and other regulatory and security frameworks and speeds it up. NIST rolled out version one of OSCAL in June 2021 and has released some additional patches since then. And now agencies and industry are really starting to get on board. Department of Commerce Chief Information Officer Andre Mendez said at the NIST's OSCAL conference workshop on Tuesday that he thinks it could really be a key in speeding up digital technologies. We cannot just keep adding cybersecurity experts. It doesn't work. It doesn't scale. And so cyber defenses and processes must evolve. And this is where something like OSCAL comes in, because the burden relief from something like OSCAL in terms of the old bureaucratic processes for ATOs, for example, is enormous. The possibilities there are enormous, and they're being realized as OSCAL continues to be adopted. All right, so OSCAL has been around, as we know now, for a couple of years. What does NIST do next? How do they want to take it forward? Well, they want to keep, obviously, updating the, the software language and uh, making sure that it doesn't break backward compa- compatibility while they add more features to the to the different languages. But at the same time, they also want to bring more stakeholders into the process to obviously drive broader adoption, not just across the U.S. federal government and industry, but internationally. As well. And so Michaela Iorga, the OSCAL Strategic Outreach Director at NIST, described how this new vision for OSCAL really involves broader engagement, broader collaboration with communities across the public and private sectors. That will help the community to come forward as a one voice that helps the community to get organized internally. It's something that we thought that the, this community can do for the community to help also us drive the OSCAL program and the OSCAL development and maintenance further to a higher level. Well, Justin, I guess my question is, are agencies actually using this? Are any agencies employing OSCAL to digitize and make sure that ATOs get inherited from one version to the next of an application? There are some. Uh, One of those is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, It's putting OSCAL at the center of its plans for its continuous ATO process. CMS Chief Information Security Officer Robert Wood presented at the OSCAL conference and talked about why he's uh, excited about the program. To me, OSCAL, it is really exciting because it is a new and fresh way of doing software in the federal ecosystem, specifically doing compliance around the software we're building managing and running. And if there's ever a sort of institution where we've always done it this way is so deeply ingrained, it's probably the federal government. This movement, this sort of change, this spearhead of doing compliance differently is just really 
exciting. And that's Chief Information Officer of the CMS, Robert Wood, shows how much enthusiasm can get you. What about industry adoption of OSCAL? It would seem like this is something they need to push down from the federal level into contracts. Yeah, elements of industry are definitely on board. Amazon Web Services, IBM, and Google all presented at the OSCAL conference on their different uh, adoptions of OSCAL so far. Representatives from the Cloud Security Alliance and the Center for Internet Security did as well. Bill Venables, Google Cloud's Chief Information Security Officer, spoke at the event. He gave a presentation on how important controls and control monitoring are to the future of enterprise security and where OSCAL fits in there. The more we can kind of outpace attackers, the more we can stay ahead of threats, the more we can invent whole categories of control that defeat whole classes of attacks and do that faster and faster across our extended enterprises, then ultimately we win. Uh, and I think I, uh, it's great to see an Oscal conference uh, driving this because Oscal is the fuel for how we're going to wire all this stuff together. Some ambitious hopes for this language. Is there a path forward now, Justin, for broader adoption that other agencies can take this up? Because it sounds like the ones that are already doing it really like it. Yeah, one of the key federal partners on the Oscal effort has been the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program. FedRAMP, of course, which is used to assess and authorize cloud services. FedRAMP did not present at this week's OSCAL conference, but actually uh, in an interview on your show, The Federal Drive, this past December, acting FedRAMP director Brian Conrad did speak about OSCAL. He says that they're looking at incorporating a tool to enable automated package handling using OSCAL and that they actually did the first one last year as sort of a test case. Now they're trying to really drive this tool forward across the enterprise so that agencies who come to FedRAMP or cloud providers who come to FedRAMP can easily plug in and use this tool to get their OSCAL packages forward and really speed things up across FedRAMP. Yeah, I knew that word was familiar, and of course now I know why. My question is then, this language, OSCAL, is it for programming applications or is it something that you do in the middleware? I mean, where does it live in the cycle as agencies develop new applications and new digital services? So essentially, it's it's a language itself that expresses the security controls. It doesn't do the security for you, but what it does is it helps you to kind of tell a consistent story across different types of security and privacy controls, which is a big deal as you start talking about things like artificial intelligence applications and the excitement around generative AI and things like that. And so what you see people saying is that this can stitch together all these different regulatory frameworks using a software language itself to do security. Yeah, that's kind of what Phil Venables of Google then said, is that it wires it all together. Because I think the key issue in ATOs and all of these security and privacy controls is that they live from version to version or inherit, you know, when you do things. And therefore, if it if the controls are inherited, that's half the battle of getting that ATO, that authority to operate. So that's why the, I guess this is so exciting. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think we talk a lot about digital adoption and federal government on this program, obviously. And we talk a lot about cybersecurity and you hear people talking about the need for automation and machine readable things to help speed this up so that security doesn't get in the way of progress. And so clearly uh, here, uh, these folks are viewing OSCAL as a concrete way of achieving that. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. 
they never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, <laughs> being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.